District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We have officially hit the 200 episode mark. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thanks so much for joining for the latest in conservation, energy, environment, shooting sports, hunting, fishing news from in and around the nation's capital and beyond. We are in for a treat today. We're going to be joined by who I have dubbed our Alaska correspondent. He is a regular on the podcast, my friend Cody McLaughlin. But before we dip into our episode with him, I want to read some reviews on the podcast. And if you have not already left us reviews on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to do that today. Leave some five-star reviews. Send us your feedback. Let us know what you think. And I'm really grateful to two of our recent guests Natalie Strong and Kang Yang for leaving some reviews and Kang left his, which we are most appreciative of. And this came from August 1st and it says, must listen, informative and great talking points on the show, whether you may agree or disagree. Gabriella is an aspiring young woman who has a passion for conservation and it shows in her podcast. Her voice and topic speaks volume in a call for listening. Highly recommend Gabriella keep the great content coming and thank you for giving a platform for the voices unheard. And that is what we aim to do. Thank you, King, for such a very nice ringing endorsement. And if you haven't left yours, like I said, be sure to pull up Apple Podcasts and do that today. Cody and I are going to talk about four or five subjects spanning across the United States. Some really bizarre stories, not surprisingly, from California and New Jersey. And Alaska, too. We will run the gamut on some important issues you ought to be concerned about. We will also talk about the latest in the nomination battle of Tracy Stone Manning, who is up for Bureau of Land Management and her ties to some eco-terrorist groups. Yikes. So you do not want to miss this episode. Thanks for listening and let us know what you think. I'm thrilled to be rejoined by Cody McLaughlin, who formerly lived in the lower 48, but is now living it up in Alaska. He is a seasoned politico, also an outdoorsman and outdoor writer too. And he is going to talk about and help deconstruct some interesting, crazy, fascinating stories from all across the United States relating to hunting, fishing, shooting sports, and the like. So, Cody, thanks so much for hopping on and recording this episode with me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Gabby. Yeah, I like the variety stuff that we've been doing. I think people also like that when there's a guest to accompany the different stories. So, like I had told you before, I think bringing you on quarterly will be fun And that's what we're going to do. So talk about Alaska and what you've been up to since we last spoke and since my listeners first heard you or kind of reintroduce yourself if we've had some new people come on too. What exactly drew you to Alaska and how have you been enjoying the salmon fishing? And give us an update on the adoption story of the husky myth stormy that you've been posting about. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, well, we'll start with, who I am. My name's Cody. I'm an outdoor writer and, and political operative. Um, that's a, a Jersey boy at heart, but, uh, but living, uh, living it up in Alaska. Um, uh, like you said, I came here to, you know, basically to hunt and fish and there's been no shortage of it so far. So, um, I, uh, I came up here in January. Um, and since the thaw happened and like, uh, the April, May range. Um, I've been killing it. It was one of the best years I've ever had outdoors so far. I'm just getting started. So, uh, caught a, caught a really nice, uh, King salmon, actually a few of them, um, during the King season, uh, one over 36 inches that I'm getting taxidermied. It was my first King. Um, and then, uh, one over 38 inches, 
um, and a non-retention water. So I had to let him go without taking him out of the water column. Um, had to, I caught a few over 20 inch trout, uh, the first three that size I've ever caught, uh, all in the last, um, month. And I know there's bigger ones in here. Um, uh, I limited out on silver salmon yesterday, uh, all to six, uh, seven pounds. Uh, so good hard fighting fish there. Uh, so yeah, just been killing it as you've been seeing. Um, uh, and then I'm actually going to Kodiak, um, in two weeks, August 14th through the 22nd. Um, I'll be hunting Sitka blacktail deer, uh, on, on Kodiak, uh, in an Alpine setting. Um, and I'm actually going alone now because, uh, my brother-in-law who was going to might be my partner on that hunt, uh, canceled. So shoot, that sucks. Yeah. Well, uh, it's actually made me a little bit even more excited if I, if I can, it's Kodiak's no joke. So it's kind of a dangerous place to be to begin with, not just because of the bears, but because of the weather and some other stuff. So I'm actually really looking forward to, um, to spending, um, nine days alone, just kind of, um, getting the lay of the land up on the mountain there. That's incredible. And you'll have to keep us posted on that, but something relating to topics. So Alaska has been in the news and I think you wanted to talk about what was, was it related to the closures for caribou hunting or was it another development in Alaska? But what was the first story you wanted to start off with that has ties to Alaska? Yeah. So, um, the, uh, the Alaska department of fish and game, um, uh, is, is kind of in at odds with the federal subsistence board, um, over, what originally was just a closure in the Northeast section of, um, of Alaska. That's about three times the size of my home state in New Jersey, um, uh, of, um, hunting to moose and caribou. They've since though seen even more proposals pop up, um, that would, um, close hunting to, um, sick of blacktail deer in certain Southeastern portions of the state along the panhandle there. Um, the issue with that though, is that uh, for one thing, like, let's get beyond all the science and stuff. The science, you know, is clearly in favor of, um, of allowing the hunt. Uh, it's against the, um, the, um, the tenets of the, um, North American model of wildlife conservation, but also, uh, it's just straight up local protectionism. You know what I mean? So like you, even as an Alaska resident, you wouldn't be able to hunt, uh, certain parts of these uh, under the federal subsistence rules. Um, so they're just trying to force, um, force it so that only people that live in the area are allowed to hunt. And that's just like, that's just un-American. I mean, at that, you know, like just full stop, nothing else to it. Yes. We've had Tyler Friel on from the Tundra Talk podcast. He's an outdoor life writer as well. And he's really been exploring and exposing this. And I didn't know it would extend to Sitka blacktail deer. That's crazy too. I just thought it was caribou and some of the bigger ones. Um, that's, that's insane. <laughs> Thank you for updating everyone. And yes, I have no doubt it kind of falls into the line with what we're seeing federally with kind of expected greater clashes with the West, the Western United States, including Alaska, because Alaska is kind of its own thing, kind of like Texas in a different respect. But yes, I'm not surprised to see tensions and has the comment period ended yet? I don't recall if it's ended. And then what are some of the things you've heard? Have they made any movement on it for the closures? Are they proceeding with it or have they not proceeded with it? Uh, 
I haven't heard any movement on it. Um, it's pretty quiet right now. I think they're trying to keep this under wraps after the caribou and moose thing blew up to be a national issue, um, which is smart on their end. But, you know, it's just one more reason why sportsmen have to stay vigilant um, around these things because um, they can be slipped through, you know, pretty easily um, with uh, and, you know, they'll point to the fact that there's no um, public comment on it um, as a as a reason to go forward with it. So. Um, is something that, you know, every sportsman should take seriously. Um, and even if you're, look, even if you're never planning to hunt sick of black-tailed deer, um, which everybody should, um, they're a beautiful species. They're fun. Um, not as big racks as mule deer or, or whitetails, but you know, they're pretty cool. And they're part of the North American 29. Um, but, um, you should definitely take umbrage with it because if they can do this in Alaska, they can do it pretty much anywhere, right? So the uh, right. press is something that bites sportsmen in the butt all the time where we say, oh, you know, it's never going to happen here because, you know, it wouldn't make any sense. And a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense, uh, but it's still driven by, you know, these issues like local protectionism or like, or, you know, um, these they make these claims of racism and other things that, you know, just hold no water. But, um, but you know, it's the only thing that they need to to justify this in their minds. Yes. And that's what I think what people fail to underscore. It's kind of like incremental bans with guns. We've talked about this a lot in the past, but yes, incremental hunting bans are also a strategy that the antis try to pursue and they try to paint it as, you know, this is for particular interests because they should be the only ones. I think what was the justification for just leaving it for the native population and just keeping anyone else out of it, um, anyone who doesn't kind of fit into the framework of what they see as a hunter and the native perspective is important too, but they only want to, I think, keep it open for native Alaskan interests, um, native American Alaskan interests, not, not natively born, uh, Alaskans. Um, but yes, they, they do do this in the lower 48 too, as you know, and we've both written about this for different publications about how they want to incrementally shut this off. And actually this is one of the biggest closures ever proposed bigger than anything the Trump administration proposed, but they never took away land uh, much to the chagrin of their critics. They never actually sold off a particular piece of acre. I don't recall anything ever being transactionally exchanged, but yes, this would be, yeah, complete one of the biggest biggest affronts to public land hunting, even if you don't pursue caribou hunting, which would be fun to do if I had the money and opportunity to do that. Definitely. Cause caribou meat is very delicious, but I say this as a Eastern European kind of heritage American born person. So I, I I'm not freaked out by eating different kinds of what would you call like exotic cuts of meat or exotic species to, to most in America because reindeer is really common in like Finland and, and Scandinavia and a little bit in the Baltics too, uh, with moose, especially. Um, so it's not unusual to, to well, eat it. Be honest, I honestly have, have trouble telling between a lot of different like unglets, you know what I mean? Right. Like to me, there's no difference between a sick Their taste? Deer. from a taste standpoint, like they're I all see. deer, you know what I mean? Even caribou. Right. Um, they're all cervids. Yeah. Once get, yeah. People get into these like, people get in their own head too much in my opinion um <laughs> about this stuff like oh i'd never eat like i, I know plenty of people that are like oh, i'd never eat a deer and it's like if you ever had a burger in my house you you have eaten deer i guarantee it that's um, funny you might not know it and i don't do that intentionally but like to me it's just it's all hamburger sitting in the sitting in the freezer you know um so you know i i, I just i don't understand where what 
it's shocking to me how far people have gotten from their food. It's like a, it's a really sad indictment of American life. Mm -hmm. Although there's been a little bit of a bounce back with it, with the last year, we've talked about this at length. I think everyone under the sun has talked about the resurgence of hunting, but also I think a lot of people are just discovering that it's better than factory farming. Knowing where your food comes from is always good. And the fact that it, this principle is lost on certain people in the administration doesn't surprise me. I don't see them advancing a hunting pro hunting agenda. And I think a lot of people are kidding themselves as they're going to see it. They may assuage hunters and be like, yeah, we'll, we'll expand opportunities, but I worry. And I've talked to several people privately who have conveyed to me that they are very nervous that they will potentially institute a lead tackle and bullet ban on fish and wildlife service lands. One of the last orders that Obama did when he left office in December, 2016, and we could see a lot of stuff hampering hunting, unfortunately, but we have to be uh, vigilant about it, obviously wait and see. But yeah, to me, it just seems like this measure in Alaska, even if you're not in Alaska, you're right. You have to care about this because they tried to ban black bear hunting in California, did not succeed there because all the different groups banded together to prevent that. And I would hope that same unified effort is evident in Alaska too, and that the administration, Biden administration does not pursue that, especially with all the public comment that hopefully came in with respect to that. But speaking of bears, let's go to your home state. It was just made official that the bear season, black bear season for 2021, fall 2021 is not going. The DEP did not make an amendment to pursue or uh, let the comprehensive black bear management policy continue. So it therefore expired. And it was first indicated on June 21st that, and as such, because it expired, there is no black bear hunt in 2021. So you've been on top of this issue. It has been so controversial for some reason, allowing black bear hunts, black bears, Ursus Americanus, are not threatened whatsoever on the endangered species list. They're not threatened. They're not endangered. They are far more than plentiful, and especially in New Jersey. So from a science standpoint, wildlife biology standpoint, black bears are healthy. They're of least concern on the IUCN, and their meat is delicious. They've become a huge problem because they've been expanding beyond their territories, and they're really healthy. There's no threat to them. There's no threat to their status as a species. So this makes no sense, even from just a common sense standpoint. So why are they pursuing this? We know Phil Murphy campaigned on this issue. He won on that issue and the animal rights groups are really active in New Jersey, but what implications will this have now that they're actually going through with this, they're carrying out their wishes in, in doing this and hampering wildlife biology and, and conservation. Well, so let's take a look at, you know, so I've been, I've been out out of the tip of the spear on this issue for four years now. Um, and let's take a look at kind of where we started and where we, be, where we are now. Right. So the, to give a quick 30,000 foot view, um, the, um, there was a Supreme court decision in 2007 that there was a, that basically ceded authority to the, um, management of black bears to a black bear management plan, which was codified under fish and wildlife, um, regulations. Um, so that plan though, like all regulations expires every couple of years. Um, I believe it's every five years, um, in, uh, in New Jersey. 
So those regulations sunset, they have to get readopted. Um, and it's, and it's, it's a look, listen, as a person who hates regulations, um, in most instances, it's a good idea to have regulations, um, be reevaluated every couple of years so that you don't have crappy, stupid laws, um, uh, just remaining on the books indefinitely. Right. The problem is that now politics gets involved, um, in what is supposed to be and what was designed to be a non-political process for the betterment of the environment and animal populations in New Jersey. So we had a black bear management plan for five years that, um, that dictated that we needed the hunt for the reason of, it was a management hunt. They keep calling it a trophy hunt. Bill Murphy calls it a trophy hunt. It's not a trophy hunt. It never was a trophy hunt. And it's evidence that it's not a trophy hunt with the fact that anti-hunters complain that we shoot small bears all the time in New Jersey because we're going after small yearlings and stuff like that. You're supposed to just kill whatever bear comes along in New Jersey, right? Um, that's the point of the hunt. That's why it's only a week long, um, two, two weeks out of the year, right? So, um, and to give you an idea of where we're at now, the world record black bear, world record, for Pope and Young, just got taken out of New Jersey last year, okay? Um, 60% of uh, lands available to hunt uh, have been unavailable to hunters in um, in New Jersey for three, going on three years now um, uh, after the governor unilaterally um, uh, closed off um, lands to hunting. Um, so that was his first step. That was the best that he could do because the governor, as powerful as the governor of New Jersey is, it's a, he's actually the strongest governor in America. He actually has no authority over fish and wildlife management um, because um, the New Jersey also has the strongest fish and wildlife council in America. That's a fun fact for the readers or listeners here. Um, so um, after that ban happened uh, on, on the usage of state lands, there was a whole lawsuit thing. Um, we lost that lawsuit just, you know, and the judge actually agreed with us, but just deferred to the, to the state, which is kind of what a lot of administrative law judges do, uh, which is a, you know, just a terrible system in and of itself. Um, but getting back to what happened with the bears, right? That's the question. What happened with the science? So um, we've seen an uptick and a huge uptick, mind you, in bear complaints, bear sightings, um, uh, category one, which are dangerous bear complaints, every year since the governor um, instituted first his ban on um, hunting on state land, and then now with the cancellation of the hunt. Now, it's important to note, the hunt was not banned in New Jersey. A lot of people are going to think that, and it's a very fine line to walk. You have to, your listeners have to understand that, hunt, that black bear hunting is not banned in New Jersey. Bill Murphy pulled a, um, a strategic um, administrative maneuver where he forced his DEP commissioner, and shame on the DEP commissioner of New Jersey. I can say that now because I'm not involved with, um, uh, with organizations in the state. Shame on the DEP commissioner for um, kowtowing to that and flying directly in the face of science um, to... Um, to pull some stupid maneuver where he refuses to sign a sound black bear management plan that was given to him months ago. He refuses to sign it because of, for the sole purpose that, um, that bears won't be able to be hunted in New Jersey without a plan. 
So now I've been saying for three years now, four years almost, that Phil Murphy has no plan to manage Bears in New Jersey. Now he quite literally has no plan to manage Bears in New Jersey. And it's just some stupid political stunt. It's dumb. That's a good clarification. Thank you for making that clear. Yes. And that's crazy that he campaigned on this issue, won on this issue, and that it's proceeding. But yeah, you're right. The DEP and fish and wildlife folks, the fact that they're going along with this, they shouldn't be in their job if they're not standing up to him because the science is settled on black bears. They're healthy. They need to be managed, especially in New Jersey and allowing this stop of the season to proceed is very counterintuitive and will have deleterious consequences. Maybe Phil Murphy needs some bears in his backyard to understand what exactly goes on until you actually experience it or hear from people you don't understand. So it's, it's a shame and it's a uh, something that we could foresee in different States. That's why politics is so important who you vote in. And sadly it's, so divided. So it's like one party will represent your hunting interests for the most part, the other will not, as we have talked at length. And so sadly, you have to look to see who's going to support your interests, even if you don't necessarily agree with them. But if they're pro hunting, you have to be like, I'm going to support this guy or gal because they're not going to take away my opportunity to hunt. They're going to be guided by science. So that is a shame. And what a what a dishonor, you know, to wildlife biology. So I'm sorry for the New Jerseyans back home in your state that have to deal with this, but maybe cooler heads will prevail. I don't know if they can, someone can sue to prevent this from going into effect. I don't know if they've taken legal means, some of the groups you've been involved with, but maybe we can be a little cautiously optimistic that uh, the truth will prevail, but yeah, what a disappointment, but it could be seen in other States where anti-hunters or preservationists reign. It could be Illinois. It could be New York. It could be California could be plenty of other states. So yeah, we have to keep a close eye on that. And oh, we have two California stories that we have to deconstruct. So I told you about this insane story from my home state of California. There are two actually. So they want to, there was a study, which to me kind of is like, I don't think anyone refers to fish like this, but there is an internal battle now in fisheries management, I guess, from the academic side. And it was published by UC Davis and it is called the goodbye to quote rough fish paradigm shift in the conservation of native fishes. And from the explainer on UC Davis's website, it says that uh, from art to religion, to land use, much of what is deemed valuable in the United States was shaped centuries ago by the white male perspective fish. It turns out are no exception. A study published by the Fisheries Magazine, a journal of the American Fisheries Society, explores how colonialist attitudes towards native fishes were rooted in elements of racism and sexism. It describes how these attitudes continue to shape fisheries management today, often to the detriment of native fishes. And they explain a rough start. They say the term rough fish dates to commercial riverboat fishing in the mid-late 1800s. So they would lighten their loads by rough dressing, removing organs, but not filleting less desirable species and discarding them. And then they say that species like the alligator gar are in this category, calling it the wolf among fishes. And they say that beautiful fish are more highly prized and uglier fish are more stigmatized and discriminated against. So they say European colonialists have 
heavily influenced what fishes were more valuable. Often the species that looked more similar to what they're used to, said one individual who co-authored the study. So bass, trout, and salmon got their value while many other native species got pushed to the wayside. And the study authors conducted a survey of fishing regulations across the U.S. to compare policies and back limits on rough fish with the large amount of bass, da-da-da. And they state that um, there are no bag limits rivaling those for bass and they're threatened by this and this and this. And here are some of the recommendations before we break this down. So stop saying rough fish if you're a wildlife biologist. It's they suggest native fish instead as an alternative. Integrate indigenous perspectives into fisheries management, which I think is fair. You can do that where the it demands it. They want you to revisit species bag limits, lower bag limits for native species until science is conducted to confirm they could be higher uh, the study takes particular note of the fast-going bow fishing market that has contributed to native species removal. Ooh, so they want to go after bow fishing. Not cool. Support science on native fishes. Uh, Co-managed species that have co-evolved, such as freshwater mussels and fish that host them. I have heard from numerous people that mussels are very problematic. And they want you to, or people in the field, to correct misinformation and enhance science education through outreach and education for all levels. So... Judging from what I read to you, what do you think about this? So they may try to get rid of bow fishing as a recommendation. They think yeah. that certain fish are discriminated against. So what goes let's, in your mind when you hear this, the study? So there's so many things to tackle here. Okay. Let's start with this whole rough fish thing. Okay. Um, people don't like certain types of fish. It has nothing to, like the notion that people don't like certain types of fish because of racism is demonstrably false. And I'm going to break that down for you momentarily here. Right. Um, but it's just like they're just trying to attach some sort of pejorative to it so that they can um, guilt everybody into going along with this ultimately extremist um, uh, uh, agenda because they they just like they just hate the sporting lifestyle. They just hate sportsmen. That's it. That, that is 100% I'm convinced where these people are coming from. They're, they they see us as like redneck idiots uh, who don't care about wildlife because that's how Hollywood has portrayed us for decades. And that's that's what they see in their, in their head when they're thinking about the people that these policies affect. So let's start with this notion that only pretty fish are, um, are the ones that we all want to eat, okay? That is or target correct. for that catch and release. Yeah. Anybody, anybody who I would encourage all of your listeners to Google Chilean sea bass and see what it actually looks like and tell me that we only eat pretty fish. Okay. Chilean sea bass are hideous. A bunch of fish that we eat actually are hideous. Flounder are hideous. Halibut are hideous. All of the, all the mo mo most popular fish that we eat are ugly with very few exceptions salmon are pretty are pretty but they're pretty plain also um uh, mahi mahi and tuna are beautiful right mm -hmm. um but that's not that's definitely not driven by like some white man that decided that tuna were the prettiest fish and um and thus made the market for tuna okay that's actually mostly an asian driven thing so um I, there's there's no evidence none to suggest that Americans or anybody worldwide only eat fish because they're pretty. That's dumb. Um, so let's go back to colonialism, right? Um, let's let's take one of the number one fish that anybody who fishes will tell you that they don't want to eat because it's crap and it tastes bad and everything. 
And they're also happen to be one of my favorite fish, the American shad. Okay. Everybody says, if you talk to a fisherman, they're going to say the best way to eat, uh, eat a shad is to throw them back and eat something else. Right. Um, that's not driven by colonialist thinking at all. American shad, actually, if you read, there's a great book that you can read um, called uh, Founding Fish. Um, Mar- American shad were George Washington's favorite fish. So, I mean, that right there would be an example, a prime example of your colonialist thinking that would, that would, according to what these people are saying, put American shad right at the top of what we want to eat. Um, they were considered great table fare for over 100 years. It's just the fact that they're very oily and we frankly found better tasting fish, right? So like salmon have, uh, have been on the rise and other fish that are just easier to process. You know, there's a 306 bones in a shed, so nobody wants to do it. That's the problem. Um, so, you know, so this colonialist thinking thing holds no water. There's not, nobody's sitting there saying that they want to kill off all the, um, all the, you know, alligator gar because they hate native people. That's not what, that's not what's happening. That's never been what's happened. Um, and then, so let's move on to, um, to this notion that bag limits are driven by racism or that you should, um, include, um, a quote unquote native perspective into management. Management of any species should be driven by one thing, which is the goals of the fisheries manager um, who should be a biologist um, for that particular region, body of water, et cetera. That's it. It shouldn't be a white man's perspective. There shouldn't be a native person's perspective. There shouldn't be in any kind of person's perspective except for biology. That's, that's what we all agree to as part of the um, North American model of wildlife conservation. And it has worked wonders for over a hundred years. White-tailed deer came back from the brink of extinction. American shad have come back from the brink of extinction. Sturgeon are on their way back from the brink of extinction. All these things are, are and they're all native. Um, uh, so American shad and um, sturgeon, two uh, fish that are um, that have that are native and have had their um, uh, have had bag limits on them. Um, you know, due to due to fish declines in the early 1900s. And both of which are now on their way to recovery. Sturgeon going a little slower, but that's because of how, you know, how lengthy their life cycle is. Um, so, you know, like the notion that we are not putting bag limits on native fish is just crap. But we're, we're putting, I mean, anybody who's ever looked at, um, at Alaskan fisheries management, there's emergency orders that get published every other day. Here. You, need a, you, need a, you need a law degree to read the regulations in Alaska. And I, I can tell you, cause I moved here. Um, the, the South central booklet for regulations is bigger than the entire booklet for the, my home state of New Jersey. Um, and bow fishing is a great way to, um, to manage fish populations, especially for non-native fish. A lot of those carp species that people bow fish for are, uh, are non-native and even invasive. Um, you know, everything from goldfish to, um, to invasive, mostly European style or Asian carp, um, uh, you know, uh, pike up here in Alaska are the only thing you can bowfish for. And that's because they are an invasive species. So boat, and listen, let's dispel the notion right off the bat that, um, 
that you that any game species that's like worth um anything to like uh to fishermen um is something that you could bow fish for because that they will that would never be allowed okay you would have riots and if if people started shooting um trout with like bows and arrows like <laughs> I, fly fishing community would like full-on riot oh um, yeah it would never happen no it's it's not an ethical means of taking them um i think bait cast spin cast fly is perfectly fine um because yeah no 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 we don't want to do that but for certain species like those you've caught uh before whether you're doing like a sucker um invasive carp totally warranted or the stingrays like are those in the chesapeake bay i know those are problematic too so people bowfish for stingrays or um the skates the less poisonous variety yep Mm -hmm. for so yeah for problematic species that they've determined you can remove from the water using those means oh totally yeah it's it's fine but proceed continue oh no i mean it's just um there's there's no part of this logic that that makes sense at all um when you when you think about it for anything beyond the fact that you're just calling it racist you know um so you know so we've we've refuted so far that people don't eat uh that People don't eat ugly fish. That's crap. Um, the fact that this is driven by racism. I mean, I would I would posit that it's more racist to just say that you know certain um, certain ethnic groups can have more of a say in in fisheries management, even when it goes against the science. Um, is is more prejudice, we'll call it, um, than than by saying that you know the science itself is going to dictate what these. Um, what these um uh bag limits and stuff are and let's go back to bag limits um currently um fish and wildlife councils um decide on decide based on science what bag limits and seasons are um but those that science is uh is based on tons and tons of, of regulation with regard to you know um uh what the what the management plan is and um what the what rate those species breed at so for instance like you can't um you can't keep uh any sturgeon or even fish for them at all um along the eastern seaboard right um, mm-hmm. there is white sturgeon you can fish for up in the northwest and that's mainly because of tradition but also because they're they're a less um a species of less concern not least concern less concern than a lot of the eastern you know uh, short nose sturgeon or atlantic sturgeon um but you know you can't keep uh, any surgeon because they reproduce so slowly right it takes them 10 years to get to reproductive age and it's only been 80 or so years since they were driven almost to extinction extinction again because they were such popular table fare i might add um so um you know you take that in into consideration versus you know a you know, at bass where a lot of times, um, the retention limit is like, um, is 12 inches or so, which is like a three or four year old bass, you know? Um, uh, and that's on the low side of a retention, uh, limit for, um, for bass. So, you know, it's, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Like on, on even a, on even a base level examination, this like, 
the notion, I mean, they're, they're basically hanging their entire hat on the fact that you can eat or that, that you can shoot as many carpet or, uh, that you can shoot as many carpets or non-native mostly, um, or gar as you, as you want. And like the fa- the reason that you can is because they are a huge predator of other fish and fry. Right. Um, but also, but also because they reproduce so quickly that there's no shortage of them, you know, like, I don't understand. I just would love to, I would love to spend like an hour just asking the people who did this quote unquote study, um, like where they found any evidence to support any of the claims that they're making here. Maybe it was invented out of thin air. Because I think you talk to most people who specialize in fisheries management. I haven't seen this in state wildlife agencies. And do I know understand these people study fish, but do they go fishing? Do they enjoy it? Or are they just pontificating from UC Davis and just wanting to make news? Sometimes when you're given grants from universities, you can reach your own conclusion or you can reach a predetermined conclusion. So these individuals may be given these large sums of money to conduct these studies that may not be rooted in anything except for, okay, a certain ideology. And going back to Shad, actually, in my corner of the East Coast, we cannot possess them. We have to simply catch and release them because they are the primary diet source for striped bass. So unfortunately, we can't keep them. They do taste good. I've had them at the Virginia Shad Planking event, a big political event that is a tradition here. And it tastes really good. They nail it to the shad plank or nail it to the plank cook it over a fire. It comes out really smoky, really good. So it is a very good fish uh, going off of the point you said, but yes, I think they were just wanting to create a study for the sake of making news. And if this trickles down to the state wildlife agencies, I think it's going to be poorly received. I mean, I don't think people are constantly saying, you know, trash fish, so ugly. It's a white attitude. I think you, I've heard people of all different cultures. I have fished with Hispanic, black culture, everyone, Everyone I fish with were like, oh yeah, this is a trash fish. So everyone, regardless of race, has called something a trash fish if it is seen as a trash fish. Uh, people do this with catfish, which I wouldn't say it's like, oh, it's re- steeped in racism. No, it's just they don't appreciate or know how to prepare catfish. It's a misunderstanding of catfish. But um, certain fish are called trash fish not because people admonish them or it's rooted in some sort of ideology they possess or this hatred towards other cultures, this is baloney. Like I said, different cultures have said all the trash, the trash fish are, are that way because that's just how they were told it was. It, it's, you know, you eat it because it's perceived to be good eating food. It's not the prettiest. I mean, I don't base my consumption habits off of, is the fish pretty or not? Like, I just want to know if it tastes good. And a lot of trash fish actually does taste good. If you make fish jerky out of it, you smoke it, do this. So yeah, oh, this is bizarre. Eastern European, right? Yeah, of course. So we um, eat anything <laughs> for the no, most part. No, but like, so no, I'm a, fish. I'm a bow, I'm a big bow fisherman. Everybody knows that. I write articles about it for the NRA. I love bow fishing. I think it's great. It's fun. Difficult, yeah, but, but fun. Like, but carp, right? Carp is a very popular Eastern European food. My dad loves preparing them. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I know. Every every time I go bow fishing, a lot of the Polish or Russian people I know will ask me or to bring them the carp, which I'm fine to do because I, I don't eat them myself. And I'll, I, we usually donate them to, um, to be used for food for wildlife rehabilitation centers and stuff like that. Um, 
which is something you can do, or a lot of people use them for fertilizer, all sorts of things, you know? So there's, I mean, I reject the notion that, that many things that, of the notion of waste to begin with. I mean, I know that's a controversial stance to make, but like, it's tough to, um, it's tough to say, say that some certain things go to waste. Um, when, you know, I mean, that's just not kind of, that's, that's really not how, um, how the decomposition process works. You know what I mean? Um, but you know, going back to just, I just, I'm floored that, I mean, there's not really even any citation of any, I'm looking at this right now, there's not really even any citation of any, like, numbers where, like, quote-unquote native species are in decline. They even say in here that they, they try to differentiate game fish from native fish and then name a bunch of native, native fish, which are experiencing steeper declines than the ones that they're, that they're um, uh, advocating for. So, salmon. Um, you know, uh, largemouth bass. Um, those are all native fish. I don't like. I don't understand what they're why they're differentiating those native fish from other native fish. Suckers are not threatened. You know, like they're like trout are. You know, I mean, trout aren't native to a lot of parts of the area or a lot of parts of the states, but they're also not a species that's like hurting the environment. Um, but bass and salmon certainly are, you know, I just, it's, they're talking about bowfins, bowfins, bowfins have a lot of the, um, a lot of the most stringent, um, uh, uh, retention limits on them, um, much more, um, stringent than, um, than bass do because they, because they are a threatened species. Like it's just, there's there's no grain of truth that I can find to this announcement by UC Davis. It's shameful. It's a disgrace really to fishing fisheries management. And maybe this will inspire people who have been long, long been in the profession to speak out from, you know, discouraging studies like this from becoming the norm. And it really takes away from important work that fisheries biologists do when they put out studies like this, especially if they're so removed from fishing and talking to people and focused on this and worry that this is the biggest concern ever. Maybe like safeguarding different species that are imperiled is more important. I don't know, but yeah, this was uh bizarre to me, I think. And I, th I think, I think people, it's going to be an afterthought. It's like, I think they just wanted to do this to get attention. Maybe UC Davis was languishing from not having attention. So they were like, we're going to commission the study, push this out, cause outrage and inspire some dialogue behind our bizarre study. Yeah. I mean, take a, take a look at this. The study takes particular note of the fast growing bow fishing market that has contributed to removing native species. That's crazy. Um, that bow fishing is almost in almost exclusively targeting non-native and invasive species yes i shot a once in a lifetime um uh bow fishing target last year which was a, a black and white koi black and white butterfly koi that is a non that's a non-native and invasive species we shoot goldfish those are non-native and they're also invasive some um, people just some people just got some record-breaking goldfish here in virginia by the way I know I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, I just, I'm, I'm 
Nothing should surprise us. I I sadly worry that, gosh, this stuff might start to creep into fishing. Fishing and our outdoor activities are supposed to be like the last refuge untainted by all this political woke stuff. But now it's starting to creep in the academic component to it. But I want to end with one crazy story to also from California. So as you know, my home state for you listeners there, if you've read about California in the news politically, it is out of whack. Unfortunately, it used to not be this way. I would say for much of the time I lived there, it was pretty normal. Um, it was just only after 2012 when things really started to kind of go off the chains there, but a story from there, it's a headline that's been put out there. A lot of people are tweeting about this. I tweeted about this, of course. And the Associated Press reads, bacon may disappear in California as pig rules take effect. So in 2018, voters in California overwhelmingly supported a proposition. It's ballot initiative. So California, you can change laws by getting enough signatures to put things on the ballot. And if you reach the threshold and get on the ballot and people voted in, you can basically change laws and implement stuff in some laws a lot of the time are really crazy. This is one in particular. So at the beginning of 2022, California will begin enforcing an animal welfare proposition approved overwhelmingly by voters in 2018 that requires more space for breeding pigs, eggling chickens, and veal calves. National veal and egg producers are optimistic they can meet the new standards, but only 4% of hog operations now comply with the new rules. Unless the courts intervene or the state temporarily announce allows non-compliant meat to be sold in the state, California will lose most of its pork supply, much of which comes from Iowa, and pork producers will face higher costs to regain a key market. So did you read this story? What are your thoughts on this? I, did. Um, I think that um, if they're, you know, like basically backdoor banning bacon, that they should just lose their lose their statehood. You know, <laughs> point, California crap, man. I mean, Shots fired. <laughs> I mean, at what point do we just cut our losses and just let it sink into the Pacific, right? Yeah, just blow the bridges and let it sink. Oh into my gosh! The sea. Don't blow I, anything, I guys. He was being being facetious. He's not serious. Don't do anything. We're not. We don't want to be like Tracy Stone Manning and be an eco terrorist. So don't no, don't heed his right. advice. Yeah, please don't heed my advice. But but for real, just like. At this point, California, just just cut them off, you know, like or or just I don't know what to say. Like it's it's bacon for for crying out loud. You know, it just it it makes no sense. You know, and again, this is this is a this is a measure that was pushed by people who've never probably even seen a pig in person, let alone let alone worked on a hog operation. They have no idea how it works. They you know, they just. They, they they read all of their ideas from from talking points that are meant to stir them that are meant to stir them well-meaning people up. I will say that all of these animal welfare people are probably all well-meaning people, people who you know mean the best. They have a big heart, big bleeding heart that you know they they want the best for these animals. They just don't understand, and they're not willing to see that there's a reason why we do the things that we do. You know, including. Um, hunting, fishing, the way that we rear animals. And if you think that, again, a lot of people are going to sit there and think to themselves, well, California's whacked, so what are we going to do about it? California is the canary in the coal mine for a lot of this stuff that happens. 
um, Oregon already put a um, a uh, initiative petition on the ballot. Um, uh, initiative petition thirteen. Yes, to eliminate hunting, fishing, and, and trapping. Yes, it's if not it proceeds, just eliminate hunting, fishing, and trapping. It would eliminate all animal rearing in the state. They yes, would call that, that a too. sexual assault, and those people will go to jail for rape. That's insane. Yes, I didn't know the farming component. That's insane. The West Coast really used to be a leader in different things, and now it's just become such a disappointment. And sometimes I'm, at, I'm embarrassed to admit I'm from California. People think I'm from Virginia anyway, so maybe I'll play that up. But no, in all seriousness, yeah, it, it really is so disappointing just how warped the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington State have just become. And in California, fu- funny enough, they've complained for the longest time. We are bleeding hunting participants. What do we do to attract them? I never thought they did any effective marketing for hunting because I never saw any opportunities to go hunting. Fishing was great. Hunting wasn't really discussed. And so when you have these different laws passed or being deliberated, it just goes to show that what can you trust from their department of fish and wildlife in California? Like a lot of them are appointees of Gavin Newsom. And he for sure is not a friend of hunting and they may throw a bone to some recreational people and you have to go through hoops to apply for different tags. It's super expensive, even for native Californians to go hunting. I think they have one of the most expensive native tag rates of any state. I think some, someone, a good reporter from the Sacramento Bee who covers the environmental hunting beat, he had posted that he pays like 600 bucks for hunting each season, which is insane for a resident tag. I'm like, this is the, you don't even have to pay that much in other States. It's so crazy. And it's just, yeah. From, from, you know, this fisheries study to banning bacon. I mean, there will be a bacon revolt in California. If, if this proceeds, I have no doubt that will be for sure. And people, I think businesses will go elsewhere. I think people who are purveyors of bacon will close their businesses, especially if pork is a big item on the menu. I can imagine this will affect Asian restaurants that focus heavily on pork and make great concoctions and dishes. And so it's like, they're going to be hard hit. So they're going to hurt minority communities. They're going to hurt meat enthusiasts. They're going to hurt everyone across the board. So everyone's going to be unhappy if this initiative were or this ballot proposition were to go into effect as planned. And so, yeah. Oh gosh, California. I, I really feel bad for the California hunters and anglers out there. They just have to swallow so much and just suffer, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, if they ban bacon, a lot of people will be unhappy campers, I think. Um, yeah, 100%. So why don't we finish off with a very positive note to the Stormy Saga. So you were matched and you were matched with and fostering a husky mix by the name of stormy really cute dog i have loved your post and all of your friends have also equally enjoyed the post as well and you have a great update on that can you inform my listeners what has happened since you last spoke about stormy yeah so i started fostering stormy he's an alaskan husky uh, which is a type not breed um uh, of uh, basically a mutt mix um that's uh that's mostly um husky but they're basically bred to be bred uh their history is they are bred by alaskan villages to um to be um uh freight dogs um so basically sled dogs um so he is a he's a little looker he's sitting with me right now um and 
So I was fostering him for about six months. He's an abused dog. Um, he had never been inside a building before, and he was two years old when I got him. Um, and so we've been working really hard on that. I'm just kind of building back his trust in people and all that stuff. Um, and so um, I've <laughs> I've enjoyed on my personal Facebook page um, uh, just chronicling his little adventures because he's got a big personality. He's a good dog, uh, and he's beautiful. And um, I might be a little biased, but uh, uh, it was um, gosh, it was Friday. I got a phone call from the foster people saying that an anonymous donor had been following the post I was putting up about Stormy um, and um, had offered to pay his adoption fee, um, which, you know, is it, only like 400 bucks for the adoption fee, but I think it's a thought that counts. And that's still no small amount of money to pay. So some other guy will adopt a dog, you know? Um, so the donor stipulated though, that he would cover the adoption fee only if I adopted the dog. <laughs> um, so they called to ask me if I would do it. And I was so moved by the, by the gesture that Aww. I, that I agreed. Um, so Stormy is now Stormicus J. McLaughlin. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, so I did a couple things to, um, to pay it forward. Um, so first I changed Stormy's name, um, uh, ceremonially only. He's still using the name Stormy to Robin, um, after Jim Corbett's dog. Um, look that up, Jim Corbett, uh, Robin, you can Google it. It's a very heartwarming story. Um, and, uh, um, so then I, uh, um, I donated um, the amount of the adoption fee split between the Jim Corbett Conservation Foundation and uh, Stormy's foster um, agency. That is such a lovely ending. And I think he really is you in dog form. <laughs> to tell you the truth, like this dog is like you in in so many ways, like he he's like the best fit for you because you've been fostering a few others. But no, he's. I think he's a very good compliment to you. I hope when I come to Alaska at some point in the future, I get to meet him because I love dogs too. And I love Huskies. It must be a Russian thing. I have that in me and I have a soft spot for them. They're really good, hearty dogs. And it just is such a nice, happy ending. So did you ever find out who the anonymous donor is or no? No, no. And I'm not going to press too hard on That's that. good. Uh, if they, if they want to be anonymous, that's fine with me. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was something I was thinking about doing anyway. But uh, yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna go on some adventures. So yeah, Stormy now um, is official. Um, Yay! And uh, yeah, we're going. Um, actually, one of the first things we did was sign him up for agility classes um, and some professional training help, um, which will start actually in about an hour. That is exciting. Very, very cool. That was a great way to end the podcast. Thank you again, Cody, for coming to District of Conservation. You have to keep us posted on what happens in Alaska. I will direct all of the listeners to your social media accounts, your writings, your bylines, things of that sort. So thank you again for coming on. And I hope to catch up with you soon and experience Alaska at some point. I promise I will take you up on the offer. I'm hoping next summer I can film some videos out that way for one of my clients who hosts the podcast. So yes, we will, we'll certainly get out there, but yeah, it looks like you're having a blast. Alaska's treating you well and keep us posted on your hunt and that solo hunt you have coming up. Yeah. 100%. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes, and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Stay tuned for the next episode. Really appreciate you listening to District of Conservation.